The way I frame it is that if your loved one is dying, what you want to have done is held their hand, said, I'm here and I love you. The actual process of having your loved one die in front of you is completely overwhelming and none of us, including medical professionals, are thinking straight. And so the kind thing to do is to take the family's hand and say, we are trying to resuscitate them. Their heart has stopped. We're doing everything we can to get it started. I'm not confident this is going to work. I'm worried we're losing him. I think it would be best if you would come in and just hold his hand right now and tell him you love him and tell him you're here. That is the voice of today's guest, emergency physician Lauren Rausch. And you are listening to the Stimulus Podcast, where we break down strategies and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. I'm your host, Rob Orman. And if you are coming back, welcome back. If you're new to the show, it is great to have you. About our guest, Lauren Rausch is a graduate of the University of California, San Francisco Medical School, a master's in public health, epidemiology, UC Berkeley, and emergency medicine training at Harbor UCLA. He has decades of clinical experience in the United States, as well as experience as an instructor for first responders in the jungles of Southeast Asia. I can actually remember him showing me a fracture reduction education setup he made from sticks and bungee cords. I've known Lauren for many years. I have found him to be one of the wisest clinicians when it comes to thinking about and communicating with patients, coworkers, trainees. We've never worked together, but have extensively discussed some of the really deep and often unspoken challenges that come along with working in medicine. And that's what I want to share with you today, an inside look into the mind of a master physician and clinician who intentionally applies humanity to every aspect of his practice, like the ethical imperative of the well-deserved compliment, navigating difficult situations such as having a family member present during a cardiac arrest resuscitation, a little bit of what you heard in the opener there, giving the news of a miscarriage, how he communicates with trainees and nurses and new learners and deals with patient anxiety. We'll get into all that and a lot more, but first we need to talk about tobacco smoke enemas. I know that was an abrupt switch from something high-minded and then boom, just tobacco smoke enemas. Now, hundreds of years ago, a tobacco smoke enema was the pinnacle of medical therapy for so many ailments. And we're going to get back to tobacco smoke enemas in a second, as you will see, and it all ties in to the sponsor for today's episode, Marmed. They don't make tobacco smoke enemas. They don't. But you've heard about their balloon extractor for nasal form bodies on previous episodes, the tourniquet and unicot for digital injuries, but they also make the dermastent abscess drain. That is my favorite thing that they make. Now, if you're doing an incision and drainage for an abscess, how are you leaving that abscess when your patient goes home? Did you just pack it and ask them to come back and have that packing removed or worse yet, have them remove it and replace it on their own? Have you ever removed that stuff on a follow visit? It is dried and nasty. It is less than ideal. My preference for many years has been the loop abscess procedure. Two tiny incisions. You tie a loop in place to keep things open and keep things drainage. But the challenge has been that the loop itself is something that got a MacGyver. And if you get it wrong, you can damage the skin. And that is why the derma stent was developed. 
to avoid that issue and make the procedure super easy. Using the Dermastent clinically, I found that patients tolerated it really well. And for people who were experienced abscess customers, you know, repeat visits, they thought it was pretty damn cool and way less painful than the usual method and the historic method for abscess management. And to me, here it comes, arcing back to the beginning of this bit, the old way of stuffing a drained abscess full of cotton packing always felt like being a ship's surgeon in the 1800s, not in the romantic swashbuckling way you might thinking about, but in the leeches and smoke enema way of being a doctor. You can check out the Dermastent at marmed.com slash stimulus to get a free sample sent directly to you as well as samples of the balloon extractor, Unicot, Turnicot. Just go to marmed.com slash stimulus or use the link in the show notes. Who doesn't love free samples? All right, let's get to it. Our in-depth discussion with master clinician, Lauren Rausch. When you see a patient, you told me that you at some point in that initial encounter tell them that they did the right thing coming in today. Absolutely. Is that pretty standard no matter what, whether it's a a laceration or a nebulous chest pain or a head injury, like across the board? It's actually probably about 30 to 40% in actuality. It doesn't always happen. I try to, uh, if there's any sense that they at all have any concern, I try to make sure it happens. I think it's such a useful and helpful thing for patients. Uh, Patients are so worried and concerned about whether they should come in. There's a lot of self-doubt. Then they also have to explain to their family why they went in. When the bill comes, their spouse may be asking them or someone else or work is saying, why did you come in? So it takes a lot of courage for someone to come into the ER and seek care. And a lot of people are really uncomfortable asking for help. They're asking for help. So I think it's so easy and it's so helpful to tell them, you did the right thing coming in today. Validating the patient is, I I think that's pretty clear, right? Okay, I'm, I'm validating what you did and there's so many positive things. What do you think it does for you when you validate why they come in versus what I think can be a really reflexive thing like, oh my God, you really, you came in for this, really? I have the privilege and the pleasure of working with residents. And so what I tell the residents is that it's also, it is a good way to make sure that you're still in a good space where if you can say to someone, thank you so much for coming in so that I can help you, I want to help you. Uh, As soon as we start getting into that state of resenting people for coming in, why did you come in? Why do you have this silly complaint? You aren't on the slippery slope of burning out, you are burned out at that point. And not in a way to be negative, but just as a way to recognize that you're now in kind of an unhappy position and you need to take care of yourself and get back to that position. We all went into medicine to help people. Helping people is joyous. Thank you so much for coming in. I will help you. That's a joyous activity. Every one of us hates things taken from us oh my God, you're coming in, you're taking my time, you're annoying me. Oh, that is a horrible experience. And it's so much, you know, as the Stoics or anybody else would say, it's so much in that perspective. It's an easy thing to say, to flip that insight and to see it the other way. The practice of that is is more involved. That's 
a lifetime of practice. I wish I had spoken to you in my <laughs> I was in my first year of attending hood. You're like the Marie Kondo of seeing patients. You know, it's like, oh, here's that encounter that I have. So it, it's a dizzy patient, right? So you have an, a dizzy elderly patient that you're going to see, which for a clinician is really frustrating, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, why did you come in? When you said joy, right? Like each encounter can spark joy. You think I'm going to go help that person and bring to bear all that I can. I might not figure it out, but I'm going to do my best to help them in some way. Not just, for example, I used to work with a guy who he was, well, he was probably 30 years in and his nickname was Grumpy Doc. And uh, he was actually a very sweet person, but he hated every minute he was on shift. And we had a little doc's office and he would sit looking at the tracking board and just like stare at it, like chewing on his lip. And someone would come in with abdominal pain at, you know, 11 at night. And he'd say, oh, why are you here? Why are you here? And I never actually put it together that that, you know, obviously he, he was burnt out, but that was also poison that he was putting back into the system. Yes. Yeah. So as my father would say, when we would complain or say something like that, don't piss in the punch bowl. We all have to drink it. <laughs> I tried to have compassion for people because uh, they're suffering when they're complaining like that. I try to never do it. It's just not kind or respectful to other people, I think, to put our difficult things on other people. On the other hand, we're all human and we're all going to do stuff like that. I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to make things more interesting, and it's multifactorial. It might be trying to be compassionate for that dizzy patient and think, what is that experience and how can I help them? I also make a lot of stupid jokes or do other things to keep myself entertained. And so one of them is general fatigue, general weakness. Anytime I hear those complaints, I always perk up because then I can say my little joke about general general weakness. Have you met general fatigue? General <laughs> fatigue. Have you met major pain? Major pain. This is corporal punishment. And then I just crack myself up. And Wait, then you're, I, you're doing this all to yourself. I say it out loud to my scribe. Unfortunately, you're, you're like an airplane movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the same silly. Uh, it's the same silly common every time, and the poor paramedics have to hear it too. Luckily, there's many of them, and just one of me. And I have a huge high tolerance for boredom. But it just flips whenever I get something, one of, instead of going, you're kind oh, of re no. You're kind of reframing it. I'm reframing into, it. Into something like you're- Makes me laugh. You I are, get a smile. You are forcing the issue to make it interesting for you rather yeah. than- oh, Instead of like, oh, sigh, it's like, oh, major pain. <laughs> I think a lot of- what people come into the hospital with the emergency department or even like the clinic or wherever is anxiety. And sometimes it's primary anxiety, but more often than not, it's, you know, that some medical issue, but anxiety is on top of that. They want to know if they're going to be okay. Right? Yes. I mean, sometimes not, sometimes there's another issue at play, but they want to know, am I going to be okay? And I think that's not always the mindset of the clinician to say, all right, how can I help guide them through this anxiety? We think, all right, I need to rule out life threats. I need to do X, Y, X, X, Y, Z. How do you approach it? How do you frame that? How do you address that pretty pervasive anxiety? Part of it is that you did the right thing coming in today. We want to make sure you're okay. And we're going to do some tests and we're going to figure out what's going on. And then we're going to, whatever it is, uh, we're going to come up with a plan and we're going to, we're going to work with it. 
It's especially acute with children. When children are coming to the ER, they are already doubly anxious. They're anxious because they're in an ER, and they're also anxious because their parent is anxious. And so a big part of what we do is to not only reassure the child, but also reassure the parent, and also to give the parent some respect and authority so that the child can see that, yes, my parent has the respect of the physician, support of the physician, they're doing a good job. We all have the things we say to kids to reassure them. Certain age of kids, I like to, when I listen to their lungs, say, you're a good breather. And then at some point, compliment them. You've been to the ER before, or you've been to the doctor before, I can tell you're very good at this. And then usually they'll nod, you know, yes, I've been to the doctor before. Or they'll kind of nod, yes, I'm a good breather. Can I tell you about the foot? Yes. I want to tell you the story of the foot. This was, you know what? It's probably a story of like a thousand feet. This is a 10-year-old kid with a foreign body in the foot. I could feel it. I mean, I could. I knew where it was. It was a like a, a deep splinter, but I was going to need to get in there. And it was really amenable to a nerve block. And, you know, it's like questionable 10-year-old kid, nerve block, going to sedate him. Not, he was super chill, like a super chill kid. So I tell this kid, you know, and we're having a really adult level conversation, this kid and I. I describe to him, mom's, mom's there as well. She's chill too. What I'm going to do. All right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, do the nerve block. I'm going to, you know, put some gel on there so that doesn't hurt too bad. You know, it's very concrete. And I was like, man, he, he's just taking this one. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. All right, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. He gave me the uh, call and response that he knew what was going to happen. I get all my instruments out. I get all prepared. I'm thinking, this is going to be so great. I'm just going to zip, zip, zap, 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 take this thing out. I get ready to start. I'm about to touch his leg. Freaks out. Ballistic. The volcano explodes. He's crying, freaking, hyperventilating. Mom is freaking out, sweating. I'm sweating. The walls are sweating. I mean, it was like, it was so much tension. And I've heard you say, don't read the Magna Carta to the kid. Well, maybe not in those words. Don't read the Magna Carta and go through all this, this rigmarole. What you need is ambush and attaboy. And I'm thinking, wait, does that sound ethical? <laughs> what is this? What is this ambush and attaboy? I, I feel like the opposite is kind of like one of those movie scenes where you're setting up to torture someone. Like Marathon Man. Yeah, Marathon that, Man, right? Yeah. They're in the dentist chair and you land, line up all of your shiny instruments and you show them to them and you explain exactly what you're going to do with each of these instruments. In order to generate this degree of terror and fear <laughs> and then allow it, they leave the instruments and the person gets more and more frightened and the whole terror takes over and pretty soon they're willing to tell you anything before you even pick up the instrument. What's even better is to minimize the time in which you tell someone you're going to do something and the time that it actually happens to my window is about 30 seconds. So they basically know I'm going to inject them or I'm going to do something, but I prepare everything. I don't show them the Marathon Man instruments. Everything is behind my back. And then kind of right when we're ready, then I just ambush them. I just kind of go, okay, here we go. Boom. And I do it quickly as uh, we're done. And then afterwards giving the big pat on the back, the attaboy, you did great. So that is ambush and attaboy is basically you're not, you're just trying not to give him that time. There's probably some magic window where the terror doesn't become chronic or become more severe and the anxiety itself becomes a problem. 
So I just try to do it as quickly as possible. Once it sets in, you're you're, you're, done, you're you know done. you keep going back into the room and saying like, okay, calm down. But it's a yeah. th then you've got to do some like yeah. ketamine or something. I do deceive children when I'm doing like laceration repairs. Unfortunately, so I I tell them um, we've got two solutions. Well, this is in a certain age group, maybe five to twelve. We've got two options. We can do the stitches, which I really don't want to do, or we can do the special bandage. And the problem with the special bandage is it takes a long time. I have to clean everything really well, and I have to hold it together for a while to get the bandage to hold. And if it doesn't, then I have to do the stitches. Then when I'm cleaning the wound and I put the gel in and I'm starting to use light lidocaine injection buffered into the edges of the wound uh, just to kind of numb it up, I'm telling them it's going to sting. We're cleaning it up. As soon as it's not dirty, it's not going to hurt. And then I've just numbed up the wound and I've told him, so I've deceived him with that. Well, so you tell them you're cleaning the wound? Tell as, them I'm cleaning the wound it. and the soap is going to sting. Because we'll tolerate stinging soap, we will not tolerate a sharp object oh stuck into gosh. the wound. And then yeah. if they say, you aren't sticking that into the wound, I say, no, right next to the wound. <laughs> and then they say, are you giving me a shot? And you say... You know, we're trying to see if we can avoid shots. We're going to see if we have to, we're going to do a shot. And that's while you're giving them a yeah, shot. <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, sometimes I'll ask them, have you ever heard someone say, I have good news and I have bad news, which do you want to hear first? And they will always say, no, I've never heard anyone tell me that before. So I think it's probably just a bad question, but I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell them. So at the end, I'll tell them, I have good news and I have bad news. So the good news is we are all done. And the bad news is the special bandage wasn't working. I had to do three stitches. And you are the bravest person who got stitches today. And you can usually you've already done the little question of your young patient. You know, you know what grade they're in, what their pet is, who their siblings are. And so you'll tell them, you know, go back and tell your sister that you are the bravest person I saw all day. You got three stitches. You didn't move. You held still. You are amazing. If all of my patients were as brave as you, my job would be so fun and so easy. And so now the child has like two choices. One is that doctor lied to me and deceived me or I'm the bravest person he's seen all day. So I think we both like that fiction. You know, he's the bravest person. Oh my gosh, with this deception, there's like, you know, these experts in pediatric pain management and we're going to be- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you can cut that out because I don't want to, I don't want to no. piss, I don't want to kick over any uh, anthills or Kicking piss. over things is great. Yeah. It's yeah. great. <laughs> so, Let me ask you your opinion on white coats. Yeah. I'm curious as to what you do. I tried wearing a white coat so many times, but after med school- when I was required to wear one, I'm sure you yeah. were required to wear one, like the yeah. short white coat that was Absolutely. Me meant to be yeah. a little demeaning and you had a little patch that said, I'm not quite oh, there. And horrible. Oh yeah. Sorry, med students. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I always found a white coat uncomfortable and hot and you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a germaphobe as you know. I thought it was like this fomite yes. waiting to happen. And so once I was in a position where I didn't have to wear a white coat, I would wear it when I was cold or if I needed to really look doctory. I'd wear it. Otherwise, it was just scrubs. And then I'd introduce myself as the doctor. Yeah. I am a huge fan of the white coat. I think patients love it. I think it's one of the easiest ways to quickly build rapport and give them some reassurance. I think one of the problems is what are the white coats? Often, you get a white coat when you graduate or during residency, and it's this all cotton garment that has sewn buttons and it must be dry cleaned. And it's just horribly, you just can't do it. So what I tell the residents is, 
go into Amazon and get something with a lot of polyester in it that's well, you can quickly throw in the wash and get in block a letter writing your name, Dr. So-and-so, and put it on the opposite pocket from where you're going to wear your badge. And you'll notice about one out of five times, the patient will be just looking at that name while you're talking to him. Sure. And you just know, yeah. this is so helpful. <laughs> <laughs> How do you introduce yourself when you enter the room? Hello, I'm Dr. Rausch. Your nurse is, tells me that you're having chest pain. And the way you articulate it to the patient reassures them that you are part of a healthcare team. And this healthcare team has already started taking care of them. And that you are just coming on as part of that team. So that they, you know, they, they know. you've communicated yes, with each other. Communi- yes. The- You're not asking the same thing like, oh, why are you here today? Yeah. After that, so you do your, you know, history and physical and all that stuff, and you're about to wrap it, about to leave the room. And then the visit starts, the real visit starts with all the testing and the time, et cetera. How do you set that up? This is such an art, you know, it it, it kind of reminds me of the Star Trek episode, <laughs> lots of Star Trek references on the show, a Star Trek episode where Scotty says to Captain Kirk, hi, Captain, it's going to take... 48 hours to fix this. And then the guy says, it only takes 20 hours to fix this. That's right. It does. (laughs) And I think, oh, Scotty, there was a lot of wisdom in that. So even though Captain Kirk might have known it doesn't take that long, it still, it still sets that expectation in his mind. Under promise and over deliver. Add at least an hour to whatever your prediction is for how long everything is going to take. The patient has never had a CAT scan, blood work, and an EKG and a chest X-ray done before in their whole life. They have no idea how long this takes in your institution. As soon as you tell them how long it is, if you are one minute over that, they're like, Doc, you're, you said it was going to be 90 minutes. It was 91 minutes. However, if you told them it's going to take two hours and you're like, we pulled off a miracle, it's only 91 minutes, they'll be quite pleased. The other part I like to do is I like to scope for the patient's Uh, what we're going to do and use very general terms. For example, we're going to do some blood work and we're going to check your kidneys and your heart. We may do some tests on your liver, your pancreas. We're going to do an x-ray of your lungs and we're going to do an EKG to check out your heart. Uh, When we get all this information back, we'll have a better idea of what's going on and we can come up with a plan of what to do next. That's so interesting that you do it that way. I didn't always have that approach and, and and I'm curious as to what you think about this was it was more disease specific. So as emergency physicians, the thought is what are the things that's going to kill this person? What do I need to rule out? What am I in my mind ruling out? So I would say to them, let me tell you just how I think about this. I want you to know my internal dialogue and why what's going to happen next happens next. So you're telling me you have this chest pain that hurts when you breathe in. Usually that's nothing bad, but the bad things it could be, could be a blood clot in the lung. Okay. Serious. We're going to check for that. Could be a collapsed lung, what you call pneumothorax. Could even be sign of a heart attack. Could be all these serious things. Could be nothing. We're going to check you out for all of it. And I'll tell you the results and then the next steps. That just kind of worked for me because then I would sit down and say, okay, here's your D-dime. Here's what your blood test shows. Here's your EKG. Here's For me, it really made a lot of sense on how to have a good rhythm to setting the expectations, explaining what was going to happen, and then the reveal at the end when yeah. you have all the results so that they kind of understood like, wait, what's a blood clot? Now they knew like, oh, you were checking me for blood clot. I like yours a lot 
because it doesn't put them in that state for several hours like, oh God, I could be having a heart attack or a blood clot. What do you think about that more specific focused approach? I think they're both good. I think the uh, part of the risk is then they'll be Googling D-dimer and pulmonary embolism, and then they'll sort of go down this rabbit hole. So a lot of it depends on, one, your sense of their level of anxiety as well, and two, their sophistication, and then three, how much time you have in order to do the education, do the response to any anxieties, and how quickly you're having to move. I want to switch to a couple of difficult conversations and some really difficult situations that happen in the emergency department, or I mean, that happens in many different places, but that specifically. One is telling someone that their loved one has died, specifically after they've been brought in for, uh, after a cardiac arrest. And the other is giving the news of a miscarriage or a fetal death or a fetal demise. I want to touch on both of these, but first let's talk about delivering the news of a miscarriage. Now, clearly, yeah. the patient knows that something is amiss, otherwise they wouldn't be seeing you. Often there's hope to whatever degree of yeah. rationality, there's hope that things might be okay. Often there's also a lot of hope put into this pregnancy, you know, like so yes. much emotion yeah. invested in this. So yeah. wh- when you're in that situation, how do you have that conversation? This is one of those times kind of like when someone, it is someone dying that has repercussions and reverberations in the rest of your life. And there are ways perhaps that we can help people in that moment, so it won't be quite as hard or severe and they will be able to process it. So my goal with miscarriages is to help them address three points. The first point is that every woman who has a miscarriage feels like it's their fault. To tell them that, to name it, and then to reassure them also to say, it's not your fault, but you're going to feel that way. Just know it's not your fault. If they have older children, I will say, you know, as a mother, if anything happens to your kids, you feel like you must have done something wrong. If your kid stumbles, you wonder if you tied their shoe correctly. And so as soon as you are pregnant, you are a mother and this is your child. And anything happens, including a miscarriage to this child, you feel like it's your fault. And that's normal. Every woman feels that way. And every woman will also probably find something that they think they might have done. They'll find the the one thing they did, whether it's, and I'll tell women this, it's very common. Everybody will think, I went on that trip, or I drank wine, or I didn't see my OBGYN. They'll have something they think, and I'll say, that's very normal, and just know that that's not what it is. Then my second point I tell them is, most of the reasons why you have a miscarriage are completely beyond our control. And I like to give them just saying a lot of this is their chromosomes don't align correctly and something major like the heart doesn't form. And if there's no heartbeat, then the baby can't grow and then you lose the pregnancy. I think a lot of times as physicians, we're very sophisticated and we tend to give people very sophisticated analyses and responses. Kind of why did this happen? Most people, they want a more general answer. For example, a lot of times telling people in the heat of the moment, why did my loved one die? I'll say whatever the disease process was, was going on and it was too much. And then their heart gave out and they died. Uh, and that seems to be 
a little more straightforward. They're really not trying to dissect the specific pathophysiology. They're kind of desperately grasping to try to center themselves in this experience and figure out what's going on. And I don't want that to be a distraction on their process. So I'll just use a generality. So with the miscarriage, I like to tell them, you're going to feel like it's your fault. It's not. Generally, these happen just because of uh, some kind of chromosomal abnormality like that. And then also the idea that if there's a partner in the room or with them is just to tell them that a lot of times when we're trying to be supportive of someone who's had a miscarriage, uh, we'll kind of think like, it's okay, sweetheart, we can try again, something like that. And I'll usually tell them at this point, this is how I was until I had a mis- we had a miscarriage, my wife had a miscarriage. And then you realize that this is the loss of a child. This is a much deeper wound than that, and that they really need support. Do people ever ask you, what does that support look like? Okay, well, so then what do I do? What, what am I supposed to do with this? Very rarely. There's a lot of times where we're doing the, the quantitative beta HCG, we're trending it, we're trying to see what's going on. And a lot of times, because I don't, I'm not confident that I'm going to be the person who's going to see them in 48 hours, I will say, one of the things this could be is a miscarriage. And let me just tell you briefly some really important things to know about a miscarriage. And one is that every woman who has a miscarriage always feels like it's their fault, but it's not. They will think they did something to cause it, but they didn't. That often the cause of these is just something like a chromosomal abnormality. That Do you think people understand chromosomal abnormality? I think they understand the part about the heart doesn't form. Yeah, I think part of it is they don't really need to understand. They just need to know it's some kind of thing that's going on. It has nothing to do with me. And then the heart didn't form. And how can a baby live with no heart? A little bit like we say ionizing radiation when we're trying to discourage people from getting <laughs> CAT scans. <laughs> Right. Now, you said something in the beginning that people feel like it's their fault and you're going to feel this way. Do you say you're going to feel this way or you may? I say most people feel this way. Uh Okay. Almost, yeah. Most people have a miscarriage will feel this way and then they will often blame themselves and there'll be something that they will think might have caused it and be worried. So you leave it kind of because they might not. They might not. Some people are, for example, it was unplanned. They didn't want it. They're planning on getting a therapeutic abortion and they may be very, in one sense, pleased about it. On the other sense, whether it's unplanned, it's still a big event and it's going to cause some distress. I want to change gears to the, the other side of this, the end of life often seen in the emergency department, the cardiac arrest. Now, nine times out of 10, it's somebody who's brought in by ambulance and CPR is already in progress. It's been in progress for a while. You know, you get a very quick history, the patient is handed off to you and then off you go. You're kind of off to the races. Now, about five minutes or so later, you hear this from somebody, maybe the unit clerk or one of the nurses who comes up and whispers in your ear, the patient's wife is here. I mean, let's be honest. Chances are you don't know this patient's name. You are in CPR resuscitation mode going through the algorithm. You're task saturated. There's so much, a lot of it's automatic, but there's just a lot going on. So you've got CPR in progress. The significant other has just arrived. How do you orchestrate things from there? In one of my hospitals I work in, we run the code blues often in the hospital. So often you're going up to do a resuscitation with family members who are either at the bedside and now out in the hallway or arriving quickly. And the way I frame it is that if your loved one is dying, what you want to have done is held their hand 
said, I'm here and I love you. Uh, that is what we all want to do. The actual process of having your loved one die in front of you is completely overwhelming. And none of us, including medical professionals, are thinking straight. And so the kind thing to do is to take the family's hand and say, we are trying to resuscitate them. Their heart has stopped. We're doing everything we can to get it started. I'm not confident this is going to work. I'm worried we're losing him. I think it would be best if you would come in and just hold his hand right now and tell him your love, you love him and tell him you're here. I know he'll understand that. I know he'll know you're here. Please come in right now. And I'll take their hand or take their arm. Usually, I'll ask a tech to quickly get a chair somewhere near the patient, hopefully on the far side from where the CPR is going on, so they can hold maybe at least a hand or touch them. The downside is often you'll get the patient who either becomes a second patient, they collapse. I like to have my arm kind of cupping their forearm, and I like to get them into a chair, and then someone's kind of paying attention to them. Or the other thing is then they will start screaming at their loved one, dad, don't die, dad, don't die, and becomes a little distracting for the staff. But I think both of those are totally normal reactions. Either one of those is totally normal, and it's totally fine, and we can manage that. What do you do with that? If you have a successful resuscitation, you know, the, you have a return of circulation, the heart starts going, you've got a lot to do at that point. You know, yeah. there's, I think when it's clear that a code is not going to end in resuscitation of the patient, that they are going to die, it's much easier. If you do have return of spontaneous circulation, I always like to give full credit to the family member and say, I think they knew you're here. I think they're responding because you're here. Do you keep uh, them there then, or do you kind of go about your other stuff? Uh, it totally depends. If we're doing a procedure, then they have to step out. I think that's completely optional. I think in the age of COVID, everything is completely different. But hopefully, once we get a vaccine, we'll be back to uh, bringing family in. And this conversation is, yeah. is in suspension right yeah. now. But I think in like the arc of yeah. of yes. uh, of how this goes. But how do you end? the resuscitation when it's clear that the person is dead. And I ask that because if there's no loved one in the room, how it goes is usually like this. You know, you ask, does anyone have any other thoughts, any other ideas for this resuscitation? Sometimes yes, it's usually no. And they say, we're going to end resuscitation. Time of death is 10.59 PM. We can get into like having a pause. It's very clinical. It's almost ritualistic how that goes. But I would think that if there were a family member there holding the hand when that happened, that would be sort of shocking or abrupt. I like to check in with the other people in the resuscitation about uh, if this round doesn't work, if we're still asystole, I'm planning on calling it at that time, do you agree? And so that'll be a sidebar. So it's not announced over the patient and with the family member there, if that's what's going on. That's before the person gets in the room? No, if the person's there, I'll go. I, if the person's there holding their loved one's hand, CPR is in progress, I'll walk over next to the nurse is involved in resuscitation, anyone else who, any of the people who I'd need to talk to, and I'll just tell them in just a normal voice, kind of what my plan is. And I don't think it would be too upsetting if it's overheard, but they're not really 
listening for it. There's so much noise and chaos, and they are completely overwhelmed. So I don't think they're at all hearing that this is the plan. And then if we're still in a systole, I'll tell the family member, he's gone, he's died. And at this point, I like to have, if I were to die, I would want someone holding my hand and I'd want people being kind to me. And so I try to remember to put a hand on the patient's hand and just try to be aware of this is a person who's dying or in the process of dying and has died. And later we'll go out, I'll sort out exactly what the time of death is. I'll ask the nurse uh, what time it is so we can get our death note uh, synced up. And then there's the point, there's that wonderful mindful pause article uh, from the ICU about how after a death that we want to take a moment and have a pause and reflect on the fact that everybody did a wonderful job, the whole team did a great job, and this patient is not just a mannequin, this is a person who had a, a long, rich life with people who love them, and that they've now died, and that we did everything we could. Take a moment and acknowledge that, uh, instead of pretending it didn't happen, or burying it, or distracting ourselves. Do you do that mindful pause of, let's, let's pause for a moment, team, everyone did excellent work. Thank you for that. Now let's take a pause and remember a rich life lived for, and it frankly helps to know the person's name. You don't always have it yeah. for Mr. So-and-so and just a, you know, a moment of silence for that. Do you do that when the family member is in the room? Ideally, when the family member is, is there, I think family really appreciates it too. Everybody is stunned. The whole family has no script. The family members died. They're sitting there holding his hand. What do you do? Do you have them then leave the room? Because there's, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen, right? After someone dies, just um, the administrative stuff in the emergency no, department. No, I, I feel like they can have some time there. And I like to have like give them a time with their loved one. Do you send in the chaplain? Or? Hopefully, they're already there. And if yeah. yeah, hopefully, they're already there. The clinical stuff is easy. And then that leaving the room is awkward, you know, of just, I'm leaving you here. It feels like an inelegant handoff, you know, of just, here, here you go. We're going yes. to step out. I, I think it can be abrupt. I think if you are compassionate, the nurses are always wonderful and really appreciate the leadership, I feel like, from the physicians on this. And we'll usually take it from there. If you have a child in the emergency department who's dying. And I, I know in your area, there's a lot of drownings. It's yes. like an, an odd an odd thing. I think I've seen a handful of drownings in my life. I think you see like like many every summer. Yeah. You, are, you are resuscitating a child and you know CPR is in progress. Do you do the same thing with the parents? Have them hold, hold the child's hand? Yes. They may hold their hand or put the hand on their shoulder or put the hand on the leg or yes yeah, so our the last drowning perhaps three or four weeks ago it's always chaotic there's a patient being rushed in we're trying to resuscitate them uh, then we heard family arrived we were still in the resuscitation this unfortunately was a patient that was asystolic on arrival remained asystolic despite resuscitation efforts so we brought the two family members back there must be be little worse than a 
child dying. Uh, so I try to have be very understanding of any reaction that they're going to have. I just don't want them to hurt staff. There is no visceral animalistic upset, I think, that I've ever seen than a, a parent there when their child yeah. dies. I, I Nothing like it in my life experience. Yeah. This past one, after we pronounced the child and the family wanted to be with there, the dad wanted to take out the endotracheal tube, which technically we're supposed to leave for the coroner. And so we took out the endotracheal tube. I figured if the coroner wanted to talk to me later, I'll talk to him later. But the father felt very strongly, so that's what we did and tried to be supportive in any other way we could. Do you feel like you're responsible for your team's welfare? Absolutely. Because I think that different clinicians, let's, let's say different physicians have different perspectives. Some's like, I'm the captain of the ship. And some's like, I'm just a member of it, not just, but I'm a member of the team like any other member of the team. I think we have a heightened responsibility because we have a, a heightened influence over how things go. And we also have a very profound ability to shift and improve the situation for everyone else. I feel like if we are positive and supportive of everyone, that goes a huge way to making the whole emergency department a happier, more productive, and more fulfilling way. I feel like I'm not only trying to figure out how to diagnose the patient and also reassure them, but I'm also trying to figure out how can I make the nurse's job more interesting, more fulfilling? How can I make them happier about this? How can I help the other people as well? And I think that's enormously important. The more we can do it, the better. Not only the better everything will work, but I think the more we'll enjoy our job. People appreciate so much a well-deserved compliment. You said something to me as we were preparing for this conversation that I feel like I want to make into a plaque or maybe like a, like a little card that everyone who graduates from medical school should have is that we need to have enormous sympathy for ourselves. And Absolutely. it seems like an easy ask, but it's, it's a really hard ask. It is a lifetime of practice. There's this phenomenon of doctors complaining about their jobs. Uh, that has always been something that I've thought about. On one hand, we have amazing jobs. We get incredible prestige. We have an interesting job. We get to help people in these profound ways. And you will also have doctors that will always have something to complain about with their jobs. And we are extreme perfectionists. We've been selected to be perfectionists. You only get into medical school if you're a perfectionist. And we have stoked this fire of perfectionism and reached it to kind of this high peak of frenzy. It's distilled, man. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's unbelievable. And so we have an incredibly difficult time being happy or satisfied with anything. So if you said you're the second best surgeon in the world and almost got the Nobel Prize, you'd be like, huh, <laughs> well, who's the best and <laughs> what was the Nobel Prize in? Uh, that's just how we're, we work. And so we, we will naturally pick everything apart. Uh, Whatever is going on, we'll see how it could be better. And so we have to understand that and be very kind to ourselves and very understanding that we're naturally going to find problems with things. That's how we're wired and that's how we're trained. It's not 
always a curse because it helps you get this incredible fund of knowledge and this skill set. I mean, it really is this drive. You know, I mean, another question like, why is that drive there? That whole nother conversation. But it definitely makes it hard to become satisfied and content and happy. Absolutely. One of my wise teachers in medical school said, perfectionism is socially advantageous and personally expensive. Society needs us to be perfectionists, but it is very difficult for us to be perfectionists. You were talking about you know, medicine being this incredible job. There's a lot of incredible jobs out there, right? But your job's not going to make you happy. You've got to learn how to be happy with your job. Granted, there are some jobs that might not be a good fit, some jobs that inherently suck. You may have malignant colleagues, which is a recipe for non-joy, let's say, with the yes. job. Which makes me think about this phenomenon that happens when people come out of training is in residency, like this badge of honor to fight with the other services. Your warrior, you know, it's like, yeah, look at that. Look at that one. That's a... <laughs> I don't know why I always talk like some kind of like rooster cockburn something like with that gravelly yeah. voice. Like, yeah, look at that one. That's a, that's a, that's a cowboy right there. That's a cowgirl right there. Uh-huh. They, they're giving them hell. You go give them, go give them hell. But when you get out into your regular job that you might be in for a decade or more, that's like the exact opposite approach. And it kind of has to be trained out of you. What I tell residents is that most of us are born conflict avoidant and we don't like conflict. And some of us kind of enjoy or relish a conflict and will kind of turn into it. In residency, those are the people we really admire because getting a patient admitted to medicine versus surgery is often a gladiatorial battle. First, you send in your R1s, they battle, and then they tap out, and then the R3s go in. Finally, you're up to the attendings eventually, and they're battling, and then somebody wins. And in that situation, I would really admire... They're really aggressive battlers, uh, you know, your best Spartans that you would send in to fight and how tough they were. That is not how you want to be in clinical practice. It is much better to be conflict avoidant and learn how to stick up when you need to for your patient or yourself, uh, rather than have this instinct and then have to dial it back. Because either way, you need to try to get it along with everyone. This is an aside, but one of... <laughs> One of my colleagues said, the more senior you get, the more shit you have to eat. <laughs> he said, some of us have this idea that when I'm finally in charge, I won't have to eat any shit. And it's just the opposite. The more senior you get, the more shit you eat. <laughs> but I, there's got to be, I can't really say that on a podcast. So. Oh, yeah, you can. In fact, that's that'll be on a podcast. That'll be on <laughs> okay. this. That'll be on this podcast. It just gets the explicit warning. And you're talking about that what you really admired in residency. And I, I, I took that to heart. I can remember when I was working at the trauma center and it was every other day, emergency medicine and surgery would be in charge of the resuscitations and all the procedures. And I had one, two, three, four, five, six trauma bays. And in three of them in a row, all next to each other, had three people that needed chest tubes. There was a stabbing, a shooting, and a, uh, a motor vehicle crash. And they all needed chest tubes. And the surgical resident who was on for the day, it, wasn't, it was our day, it wasn't their day. So we were running all the resuscitations. He was down there and he said, hey, can I do one of those chest tubes? He was kind of a malignant personality and like known for that and, and tantrums and the like. And I just thought for a moment, I said, 
you know, I need help. I'm thinking I, I need help because this is like a lot and probably the patients would be better, right? They would be better off. And I mean, granted, I had seen these guys put in chest tubes before because I had done the surgical ICU rotation. They were really good at it too. I mean, they were, they were like artists. And I said, nope, it's the <laughs> ER day. All three chest tubes are mine. I'll come back tomorrow. And then I proceeded to put in one, two, three. I mean, like, you put them in pretty quickly and everybody did fine on podcasts. I often talk about medicine I'm not proud of, but yeah. yeah that, and that was one moment. It was just, um, you know, I'm not going to back down. This is my day. I'm not backing no, down. I and then I was thinking this was mm, probably about six years ago as working at a, a, a rural trauma center. And I had, it was like everyone was falling off their roof and I had a bunch of paper with pneumothoraces. There were, I don't know how many chest tubes were needed at the time. And the surgeon came down and said, hey, um, want some help with these chest tubes? I said, yeah. So I totally, I mean, I need help. They need help. And he said, he asked, the patients were stable and I was getting killed in the ER because it was like this slippery winter day and a motor vehicle crashes all over the place. He said, you want me to just do them all? Cause I can get them done real quick. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and um, the opposite mindset makes me think of this thing. Like love comes naturally to us and we have to be taught to hate and yeah. you have to kind of be untaught or taught to unhate or, you know, un, I, don't, I'm, I don't know if hate is the right word, but that sort of malignant aggression needs to be seeped out of you. Yeah, absolutely. There's also this way where I think we have such acute perspective on comparison, like we really measure how bad our day is compared to our colleague next to us. Say there's two of us and we're trading off patients. And you may have one day where you have 50% more patients, but you don't mind um, because it feels like, oh, it was kind of equal. And then another day where you feel kind of wrong because you had an extra patient they didn't have or something. So I, I've, I definitely, one of the things I try to do is not watch the board and not compare my tasks to someone else and not kind of resent. Teddy Roosevelt, man. Teddy Roosevelt, comparison is the thief of joy. Exactly. Comparison is the thief of joy. And what is an interesting practice is when you, if you find yourself doing that, is to try to, every shift, do something extra you didn't have to do. Oh, okay. Do something like take one of their patients or do a procedure for them or do something extra. Get in a little early, see a patient before the rotation starts, stay a little late, do something. You're always going to be surprised at how much joy that brings you. And the other provider is so appreciative. And that appreciation is what feeds us. That's one way to get out of that kind of careful watching the board and resenting that is to just assume I'm going to do extra work. I've got broad shoulders, not a problem. How can I help you? And just try to help do an extra thing extra that you weren't required to do. I want to ask you what, what you did, because it, 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 but I'm, first I want to share the story of this I, I worked with a doc. I, I, her name might have been like the Terminator in a good way. <laughs> and she was she did all night shifts. And do you ever see Battlestar Galactica, the newer Battlestar Galactica? There was the doctor who would like smoke, and, smoke a cigarette and say, what do you need? What do you need? She was like that, like, you know, would put her stethoscope on, not even in her ears, you know. She was just, had just been doing it so long, sort of knew what everything was going on. And, and she could see like 15 patients in an hour. And I never saw one of her bounce backs. I mean, you know, she got it. And I remember she would come in on the night shift after I was working, the, like the busy 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift on the, the trauma side. And she'd say, hey, three patients just came in for you. I know you're ending your shift. Let me just go see them all. 
I felt like I wanted to cry. I was so happy. (laughs) Nothing better. Another thing of trying to find places where to make your job a little more interesting and more fun and kind of help out people. I have one of these issues. I can't stand bad smells. It like really bothers me. What's, it's very the, what's, the, what's the worst? What's your worst smell? Uh, let me let me give you a let me rotting tissue. I think rotting tissue. Yeah, mm, that okay. that cadaver. I think I think the ester is cadaverine. Is the ester? Let me pull back to yeah. to current day. So you've got melana, bloody stool, vomit, urine, smelly feet. When I have a patient with stinky feet, it doesn't have to be my patient. It's just any patient that's near the care area. Usually, I'll kind of announce it like a like an adventure. Like, do you know the shaving cream trick for deadly foot odor? And then they're like, no, no, I don't. Let me show you. And so, I have a can of shaving cream that I keep. You know, I tell them there's two methods. You either squirt the shaving cream in your hand and massage it on the feet, or you fill up the hospital sock with the shaving cream and then pull it over. The patients who have very smelly feet, a lot of them are mentally ill, homeless people, and they really appreciate the foot care. They're not not taking care of their feet because they want to have smelly feet. They're overwhelmed with life and living, and it's just so down low on the priority list. So most of them will appreciate if you say, can I take off your shoes and put on some lotion and, and see if I can get your feet feeling better? Almost the majority of them, without fail, will appreciate that. And you can take their shoes off and double bag them and the socks, massage in some shaving cream, put on the hospital socks. Then I'll go check with the nurse or the staff like, so what do you think? What percent smell reduction did we achieve? (laughs) Do you ever take the shaving cream off? It has moisturizers and preserved disinfectants in it. So I think... At some point, they're probably going to take that sock with the shaving cream off and then probably put in a dry pair. But most of the time, I guess I work with such wonderful techs and nurses, I haven't had to go back and replace the socks. I'd be happy to do that as well. You had said earlier something about our ethical imperative of the well-deserved compliment. The well-deserved compliment is so powerful. I want to bring that to something that you say to your residents or a, like a new nurse practitioner or or PA who's maybe feeling like they're swimming. Absolutely. Know? We're all overwhelmed and swimming at that point. And there's something that you say to them that's, it's like a secret supercharger. I like to say to them, you're a way ahead of where we'd expect you to be at this point in your training. You're doing a great job. Most of the time, all we're doing is we're telling them what they're doing wrong and making suggestions on how to do something different. And we very seldom take a moment and reassure them, you're doing great. It's normal to feel overwhelmed. It's normal to feel like you can't do anything and that you're just in this constant flood of of knowledge. But you right now are way ahead of where we'd expect you to be right now. We're very happy with how things are going. You're doing a great job. You know, I feel like the majority of people are above average. There are some people where you can't say that to them. Um, and you don't, I'd imagine you don't. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't. You might say, I, I admire how, you know, how much effort you're putting into this, <laughs> but you'll have to have a different conversation with them later. But most people are trying really hard and they're way ahead of where they're supposed to be at that point. And that goes into the ethical imperative of the well-deserved compliment coming from the physician in charge. It is so easy for us to do that and give that recognition. And it means so much to everybody in your team that I think we all need to do it more. I need to do it far more than I do it. 
the more you can do it, the, not only the happier they are, but you will feel enormous satisfaction to be able to help your team feel better and more confident and happy about that. When you tell someone you're far ahead of where we'd expect, do you find that that energizes them to have more confidence or do you ever see that someone say, oh, all right, I guess I can pull back on how hard I'm studying and working? No, I mean, there is the worry of, of the people that we feel like are inappropriately arrogant about their knowledge and their abilities. So you wouldn't say it to that. But the vast majority of people, if you say that to them, you'll get this enormous relief. People often tear up as well. I mean, because they are feeling overwhelmed. You're feeling overwhelmed and you've just put your hand on someone and said, you're good. You're doing a great job. Uh, that is such a relief to people that I also remind them that our job isn't to be right. Being right is very difficult and challenging. Our job is just to be reasonable. We just have to do the reasonable thing. That alone is very challenging. We need to go to school, medical school, residency, practice, but we're just trying to be reasonable. We're not trying to be perfect. We're not trying to be right. Sometimes that will help reassure them as well when they're feeling overwhelmed. And that at some point you just learn, I may not be perfect, but they're going to get a well-trained, well-intentioned doctor doing the best they can. And that's all we can expect from anyone. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Man, I, I learned so much. And uh, when, even when you said that at the end, that you know, you're know you far ahead where, where we'd expect, I was thinking, oh, all right, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good. Well, see, so this is an interesting experiment to try, is just to tell someone you did the right thing. And no one ever tells us that. It's an enormously powerful statement. You did the right thing. Um. And when you say that to someone and they feel that the resident or the train, the other provider feels like, wow, that is a powerful state. Nobody reassures us like that. Then I like to think they're more likely to then use that and realize how powerful it is so that they can then tell the patients, you did the right thing coming in today. You did the right thing. We're going to take care of you. We're going to figure out what's going on. Oh, man. At, right at the end, you pay it forward. Look at, look at that. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate it. I really respect and admire you, and I'm just tickled to be on the show. Thank you. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can see some videos. You can, you can do whatnot. You can subscribe to Stimulus on pretty much any podcatcher you use, any platform. And if it happens to be iTunes... Throw down a review and rating if you have 30 seconds. I read all of the reviews and more importantly, way more important than me, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance for that. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.